morning, and as we get into the Gospel of John, last week we did an overview of the book, and today we're going to start digging into chapter 1, verse 1. But as we're getting ready to get into John, I want to ask you a question this morning, and ask the question of this, what is the most mind-blowing thing you've ever seen? What's the most mind-blowing thing you've ever seen? Was it a sports victory? Was it something in God's creation that just stunned you? Was it a miraculous healing? Was it a relationship that seemed to have no hope that God reconciled? What was it that made you pause? And what was it that made you speechless and wonder? Because as we begin the Gospel of John this morning, John is going to attempt to describe for something that was mind-blowing, that took him years to understand, and after years left him still marveling and in awe of what he saw and what he describes for us. And what he described for us should leave us to marveling in awe and in worship. And there are words that I fear that too often we just gloss over that have become routine for us and we miss what the words really say and the awe that should accompany it. And I pray as we get into John chapter 1 this morning, perhaps these familiar words that the Spirit of God will bring fresh life and fresh insight in them that we would stand in awe of who God is and worship Him in response. As we get into John 1 this morning, there's just one idea that I want to see in this text. It's one main idea that we'll unpack through the prologue of this. And it's simply this, that we'll see in the introduction to John here that Jesus is... The eternal word and light who came to show us God's glory to make us children of God and to give us grace. I know that's a lot for one point of a sermon, right? But, but John packs a lot in the opening of John here. I want to see that in these first 18 verses of John that Jesus is the eternal word and eternal light. That is who Jesus is. And then out of that, out of his nature, out of his character, here's what flows. Here's what he came to do. He came to show us God's glory. He came to make us children of God. And he came to give us grace. Friends, there is enough truth in these first 18 verses of John that we could do a whole class on this for a whole semester and not exhaust it. But there's pastors who preach through, as they preach through John, they'll spend a week on every phrase. So we could really spend three weeks just on verse 1. But today, as we work through John systematically this year, I want us to see the big picture of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Before we start reading in John 1, just a reminder from the overview of the Gospel of John from last week. John is one of Jesus' disciples, one of the apostles here, and he was in the innermost circle. He saw things that only two other humans saw and was able to record those words and tell us what happened in the life and ministry of Christ. The word gospel simply means good news, and this is the fourth record of the good news that is given to us. We talked last week about how the Gospel of John is unique in so many ways. But what's important from last week is remember that John wrote this. We saw at the end of the book. He wrote this said that we might believe. This is a book not just for intellectual sense. It's a book written that we might believe. And even in the prologue, we'll see him doing that. Even in this introduction to the book, John is still calling for a decision from us, a verdict from us. As he tells us that Jesus is the eternal word, Jesus is the eternal light. Here's what Jesus came to do. He's confronting us with the question, who do you believe this Jesus is. If you're not a believer, the verdict he's calling for is that you believe in Christ. If you are a believer, he's calling you to, to experience God's glory, to experience the living as children of God, and to experience grace upon grace, and to give God praise for that. So as you come to the Gospel of, Gospel of John, we're starting chapter 1 this morning, and I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. I'm going to ask you to stand, please, in the honor of the reading of God's Word. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, 
became to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Would you pray with me? Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful that you have revealed yourself to us. And God, I pray this morning as we look at words that we've read probably many times for our Christian journey. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would fill us afresh and you would open our eyes to the wonder of this, that we would leave this place in greater awe of who you are, O God, and what you've done. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And you can be seated. Now, this is foundational. These 18 verses are foundational to the whole book. They're really a confession of who Christ is and our understanding of him, this Christology and what we believe about Christ. It's one of the most theologically complex statements in the whole Bible. We're going to try to tackle it in one morning. Again, we can spend many weeks on this, but I want to see the big picture that Jesus is the eternal word and the eternal light. And Jesus came to do three things that we will talk about. And so first of all, who is Jesus? He is the eternal word. He's the eternal light. And notice that John begins different than the other Gospels. And there's four Gospels, and we said that John is different from the others in some ways. If you go back to Matthew, he begins with a genealogy of Christ, going back to Abraham. But if you go into the book of Mark, you can see John, the beginning of it being John the Baptist preparing the way. We go into the Gospel of Luke, you see that it's starting with the birth of Christ. But John goes back further than any of those. John takes it all the way back to even before creation, where he begins this Gospel. In the beginning was the Word. And he does this to answer the question for us of who is Jesus. And so we see in the first three verses, really, that Jesus is the Word. So look back at verses 1 through 3 with me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. As you hear this, your mind should start making a connection to Genesis here. Think of the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God. And here we have in the beginning of John's gospel, in the beginning was the Word. There's a linking here between Christ's work in creation and Christ's work in new creation in the spiritual realm here. Christ is called the Word. The Greek word here is logos. And our English is really insufficient to try to describe this translation of the word. Because when a Jewish person heard the concept of the word, it was the idea of God in action. Because when God speaks, it's not just words, but things happen. When God speaks, deliverance happens. When God speaks, creation comes into being. When God speaks, revelation comes. All these things happen. So Jesus here is being described as the word, the cause, the creator of these things. How do we know that the title for the word is really Jesus? We'll go down to verse 14. John tells us, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John tells us, verse 14, The Word is the one who came. The Word is Emmanuel, is God with us, the one who we have seen with our own eyes. But not just here, if you want to write down to look up later. In Revelation 19:13, when Christ returns riding in on the horse, He's called the Word there also. 
we want to look at later in Hebrews 1, verses two, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, you see there that the one who speaks, who creates the world, is the Son, is Christ. And so you put all that together, and John is very clearly showing us that the Word here is Christ. And what do we learn about this Christ, this Word? We learn He's eternal. We learn that He has always existed. Jesus did not begin, like we talked about in the Advent season, He did not begin at Christmas. Jesus has always existed. Look back in verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word. There was never a point in time, friends, that Christ did not exist. God has always been the triune God, Father, Son, Spirit. And as far back as there ever was, Christ was already there. In the beginning, He was already there. But we have a, this, this reference to the Trinity in the next phrase, and the Word, Christ, was with God. I mentioned it briefly last week, but it shows that Christ is distinct from the Father, yet there's one God. But lest we mistake it in the very next phrase there, the Word was God. Jesus, though He's distinct from the Father, is still fully God. And what does Christ, this Jesus, this Word do? Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is the creator. The Father wills it, and Christ is the agent of creation here. And look at how it's described as creative work in verse 4. In him, in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. In him was life. He's the life-giving agency. He speaks life in creation to bring it out, and he speaks life into the spiritual realm to bring spiritual life to us as well. So Jesus is the Word. But there's a second description of Jesus here. He's also called the light. Look in verses 4 through 9. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. Jesus, the Word, is also the light. It's the title Christ uses for himself later, which we'll see in a few months. We get into chapter 8, verse 12, where he says, I am the light of the world. What does that mean? Jesus is the one who knows God, and he's the one who makes him known. Look at how it's described in verse 9 for us. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. Christ is the one who enlightens us, who shows us who God is, and opens our eyes that we might see God. And friends, we need it. You see how the world is described here? Verse 5, the light shines in the what? In the darkness. That is the state of the world, and that is the state of every person apart from Christ. It's the state of hopelessness where sin abounds. And do you notice the parallels again here with Genesis? At creation, there's darkness, and the Word speaks, and there is light. And now in the world full of spiritual darkness, the Word comes. And as the light and brings the light and speaks into the darkness and drives the darkness out and brings the light, he shines in the darkness. But what's so hopeful, this is verse 5, it says at the very end of it, the darkness has not overcome it. Now, depending on what translation you use, it may say the darkness has not, does not comprehend it, or it may say the darkness does not overcome it. It's meaning it's overcoming the light here. Well, there's some truth in both of those. Literally, though, the word used in the Greek here is to lay hold of. To see the darkness has not laid hold of the light. The darkness has not seized the light. The darkness has not quenched the light. And so whichever way that translates it, there's truth in both. I think overcome is perhaps a better translation. But we do know later on that the darkness obviously did not comprehend it. But there's even greater hope in this because the darkness could not stop it. And notice the hope of this. Light is stronger than darkness. When there's light, darkness cannot invade and block out that light. But rather, in a room full of darkness, you light one little tiny light, and the darkness goes away. 
John's giving a very intentional image here, and you're going to see imagery throughout the whole Gospel of John. But in a world of darkness, when Christ shines, the darkness cannot stop it. John is writing post-resurrection. John sees the darkness, the evil, the enemy try to stop Christ and sees it's impossible. Christ will prevail. The darkness cannot overcome it. And so, friends, even in our toughest days, realize nothing can stop the light. Just as in the darkest dream at night, you turn on the faintest light and the darkness begins to go away. Nothing can stop the light of Christ. Well, verses 6 through 8 is more about John bearing witness about the light. And we're going to come back to that more next week when we look more at who is John the Baptist. But let me just mention here, when you have these two interjections in this, this prologue about, the, about the John the Baptist, why is it there? It's there because John is trying to root for us in history what happened. Jesus is not just a spiritual truth. He actually came in human history. The light actually came in human history. And so John is, I believe, the Apostle John is giving these, interact, these kind of interjections about John the Baptist to show us this happened in history. So Jesus is the eternal word and the eternal light. And what does the eternal word and eternal light do? Verse 9, he comes. Look at verse 9. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. The Greek word here for world is cosmos. That the word, the light, was coming into the cosmos he created. He was coming among the people that he created. And notice how his coming is described down in verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Became flesh. This means he took on human nature. Sometimes when we hear the word flesh, we think of negative connotations. There's nothing negative implied here. This is literally, he just came as a man. He took on a human form in this, that he's fully God and fully man. He became flesh, but look at what he did when he took on flesh. He came, according to verse 14, to dwell among us. And again, this is where our English doesn't really do justice because it literally says he came to tabernacle among us. He came to pitch his tent among us. He came to dwell among us. And don't miss the wonder of that, that Christ came to tabernacle with us. Christ came as the warning of the light to pitch his tent and live among us. In 1 Kings 8, Solomon asked a question at the dedication temple. He says, will God dwell on earth? That seemed like a far-out answer. And Christ has come. It has happened. He came to dwell on earth, to tabernacle with us, to pitch his tent among us. But why did he come? Jesus is the eternal word and the light. Why did he come? And I believe the prologue of John tells us three reasons why he came. The first reason why he came was to show us God's glory. Christ came as the word. Christ came as the light to show us the glory of God. Look back at verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. In verse 1, we saw the word was God. And now we're seeing that he came to show us the glory of God. What does glory mean? It means manifestation of God's presence and power. Glory is the beauty of surrounding him, the manifestation of God's presence and power. And when we hear this about the word became flesh and we've seen his glory, this should take us back to the images of the tabernacle. We talk of it as the Shekinah glory, that when there was a tabernacle, the cloud descended on it, and the presence of God, the glory of God was there. It's happened at the temple also. You think back to the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings 8. The dedication, the cloud covers the temple, and the glory of God falls on that place. That's the kind of glory has now come because God himself has come and has shown us his glory. If we want to see God in his glory, we simply look to Jesus. And friends, we need that. Look at verse 18. Verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. 
So literally in the Greek here on this one, is, is the word order is interesting because it, when it says no one has seen God, it literally reads God no one has seen, not never. You think we get the point there? In our human ability, there is no way we can see God. God, no one has seen, not never. That is why Christ had to come to show us the glory of God. It says here that no one God has seen, not never. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Made known literally means to explain, to narrate, to exegete. That Christ came to exegete for us who God is. He came to narrate for us who God is. He came to explain to us who God is so that we might see God's glory. And so, friends, don't miss the wonder of this. Christ came as the Word to explain to us the glory of God. Christ came as the light to enable us to see the glory of God. But that's not all he came for. He also came to make us children of God. Look back in verse 10. He, Jesus, the Word, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So lest we have any thought of universalism or everyone's going to be okay, he's, John is very clear for us that the world did not know God, that his own people, the Jews, rejected him here. But some did believe. Some did look to him and saw the glory of God and, and believe. And those people became children of God. Look at verses 12 and 13 and catch the wonder of these verses here. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And not all received him, some did. Some believed and some received. To become children of God, we must receive and believe. Now, what does that mean? Receiving is putting your faith in. It's a transfer of allegiance. It is an acknowledging of the claims of Christ. It's making Christ Lord. So when we say we're receiving him, it's not just an intellectual thing. It's a surrendering to him, an acknowledging of his claims, making him Lord of our lives. Very similar in believing in him. Again, it's not just intellectual. There is intellectual belief, but it's a trusting in who he is. But notice this about receiving him and believing him in verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in what? Believed in his what? Believed in his name. A name is just not some magical word you use. The name here represents the totality of who Christ is and all of his claims. So to believe in his name, this is not saying you just pray a prayer in the name of Jesus and you're okay. It's saying you submit yourself to all that Christ claimed to be. It's basically pointing us to lordship. Friends, without that, there is no salvation. It doesn't matter how many times we pray, Jesus, I'm a sinner, forgive me, in Jesus' name, amen. If there's not a surrendering to the authority of Christ and who Christ is and a believing in his name and all your presence, there is no salvation. And to help us get that, John gives us several other sobering warnings here about what salvation really is. At the end of verse 13, he helps us see what salvation is not. So contrast it with what it really is. Notice these phrases here in verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now verse 13. Who were born, first, not of blood, second, nor the will of the flesh, and third, nor the will of man, but of God. What does this all mean? It says not by blood. Well, what in the world are we talking about here? Well, we don't use it much in contemporary English, but there was a time when people would speak of someone coming from noble blood. Or coming from blue blood or different phrases like that. These are references to their genealogy, to their history, if you will, in this. And so what he's saying here is it doesn't matter who your parents were and your grandparents were. That has absolutely no bearing on your salvation. You're saying, God, you do not become a child of God because of your blood, because of who you're related to. Which was important to the Jewish people. Well, we're descendants of Abraham. We're okay. And he's saying that won't fly. But friends, that applies to our culture. I don't meet anyone on the street who's like, well, I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm okay. 
But I'll hear talk to people who do, don't know the Lord. And they'll be like, well, you know, I know, but I went to church with, with my grandmother. And my grandmother loves the Lord and my mom loves the Lord. And so I'm okay. Friends, it doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter if everyone in your family loves the Lord. That makes no difference for your state of your soul and your salvation. The second warning he gives us on this, we were born not of the blood, but second, nor of the will of the flesh. Not all translations render it that way, but that really appears to be the best rendering of that particular phrase. When we speak of, there's different ways to understand this. The way I understand this particular phrase is when you hear the word flesh, understand this in terms of your, your, your emotions, because often flesh refers to your appetites and your, your being, your body. And so I understand this to mean the will of your emotions. And I've met so many people over the years, friends, who their hope in Christ is because they got goosebumps in a service. And they had some emotional high. And though there's never been a surrendering to the name of Christ or living for his authority and living for him, they had these goosebumps and this good feeling, this emotional high, therefore they think they're okay. And I think that's what John is addressing here. We're not made children of God because of the will of the flesh, because of whatever emotional high, whatever tears we shed, whatever goosebumps we have. That won't cut it either. Just like who our parents are makes no difference for our salvation. He gives us one more warning, though, in this, and that's the phrase, nor of the will of man. And friends, this one really hits in our U.S. culture because this is really going against determination and just positive thinking about who you are in this. Friends, it doesn't matter how much positive thinking you have, how much self-help you get to, how many right words you say. It doesn't matter how many times you hold up your Bible and say, this is what I believe, this is going to change me. If there's no surrendering to Christ as Lord, that makes no difference for salvation. So if we cannot be saved because of our family line, if we cannot be saved because of an emotional experience, if we cannot be saved because of our own determination, what hope is there? The end of verse 13, there's three simple words, but of God. Friends, there is no hope of us saving ourselves. It is all of God. It's all grace gift. It's all God's work. And I think John uses whole birth imagery for us to make a point to us on here. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born. I mean, think about this. How many of you, your birth was based on the fact that you were like, man, I like those parents. I think I want to be their child. <laughs> no, we had nothing to do with it, did we? We weren't like, well, I want to be their child and I want to have brown hair and be athletic and be pretty smart. We had absolutely nothing to do with the family we're born to. And I think John is intentionally pulling that imagery out for us to say, look, you were born spiritually, not because of the parents, not because of your own effort, not because of your emotions, but simply because of God. I think he's pointing us back to that place that there's nothing in us that has to do with our salvation. It's totally the work of God, but of God. And all we have to do, like at Christmas when someone gives you a gift, you just receive it. All we have to do is believe and receive. And so, friends, don't miss the wonder of this. The word of God came to speak the gospel to us, to draw us to himself. The eternal light came to drive out the darkness so that we might see him with spiritual eyes and love him. And believe in him. Christ came as the word and the light to do what we could not do for ourselves. But friends, it gets even better because I believe John's poet shows us one more thing. Christ, the eternal word, the eternal light came to do. And that's he came to give us grace. And not just grace, but grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. In verse 14, it tells us the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth, that Jesus himself is full of grace and truth. This is his character, his nature, which we'll get more into that this, this spring when we get into, or starting in May, when we get into the attributes of God study on Wednesday night. But out of his nature, out of his character flows the grace that we need. So look at verse 16. And from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. I, I love this verse. From his fullness, 
Friends, the full resources of God stand behind Jesus. From that unending supply, God gives us what we need. And what is it that we need every day? Grace. And not just grace, but grace upon grace. What is grace? It's God's unmerited favor. But it's God's unmerited favor that brings blessings and that brings joy to life. And we as his children need that. And we don't need just a little bit of grace. We need a lot of grace. Grace upon grace. Now, how do we understand this image, grace upon grace? The the best image is actually something that we had as a background point in the song. We saw the waves crashing during Better is One Day. Picture yourself at the ocean. You go down to the beach, where it doesn't matter what beach you go to, but you picture the ocean. As far as you can see is an unending supply of water. There's more water in that ocean than you could ever immerse yourself in, that you could ever even experience. You're sitting there at the beach and the wave comes in. As soon as that wave comes in and crashes, another wave comes in and crashes. Another wave comes in and crashes. Wave after wave after wave of water keeps pouring in over you. That's the imagery here of grace upon grace. From the unending supply of God's love and God's grace come wave after wave after wave after wave. And more grace than you could ever experience in the entirety of your life keeps crashing over you. Wave after wave after wave of grace. There's no limit to the amount of grace available. Hence, when the Apostle Paul is afflicted with a thorn in his flesh, and God says to him in 2 Corinthians 12, my grace is sufficient for you. That is not just a philosophical concept for Paul. That is his experience of wave after wave. Even though the thorn is still there, the affliction is still there, wave after wave of God's grace is crashing over him with grace upon grace upon grace, with sufficient grace for every day. And friends, I don't know what trial you're in, what difficulty you're in, what temptation you face, what pain you're feeling. But if you are a child of God, if you've been born not because of your own efforts, but because of what God has done for you, there is wave after wave after wave of grace upon grace upon grace upon grace from God available for you. And that should leave us in awe and wonder that the word who came, who has power to speak the world into being, is the one who has now given us grace upon grace. The light who has come is now shining into your situation to give you hope and grace in whatever difficulty you are going through. Friends, like I mentioned, John's writing constantly is going to call us to decisions. John doesn't leave us with just these nice philosophical thoughts about who Jesus is. He demands a verdict on this. And when we see that Jesus is the eternal word and the eternal light, who came to show us God's glory, who came to make us children of God, who came to give us grace upon grace, we are brought back to the inescapable question, who do you believe Jesus is? If Jesus is just a man, you can ignore all this. This is nonsense if he's just a man. But if Jesus really is God, then what he's telling us demands our total allegiance, demands us surrendering to him, demands us following him and worshiping him and serving him. And so if Jesus came to show us God's glory, if Jesus came to make us children of God, if Jesus came to give us grace every moment of every day, I have to ask you this question this morning. Is that your experience? Have you experienced seeing God's glory and falling in love with Jesus? Have you experienced... Him saving you, not because of your efforts. When you quit striving and said, let him come and rescue you and redeem you, have you experienced being adopted and being a child of God? If not, the prologue of John calls you to believe in Christ for the first time. And as I know many of you have heard your stories, many of you do love Jesus deeply. So the question for you, child of God, is we look at this text, is this your experience? Are you in awe of God's glory? If Christ came to let us see the glory of God, are we in awe of his glory? If not... Why not? What stands in the way of seeing the glory of God that Christ came to reveal? If you are seeing it, let that lead you to praise and thankfulness and worship. But it also leads me to ask, are you experiencing the fullness of being a child of God? You have been born, as it says here, but of God. You've been adopted 
into God's family? Are you experiencing the riches of that? Are you experiencing the blessings of being part of God's family? If so, praise God. Thank Him for that. Let that lead you to worship. But if not, what stands in the way of you having the fullness of life in Christ that He desires for you to have? But then it also demands the question of us, if you're a child of God, if you've been born of God, are you experiencing grace upon grace upon grace? Are you seeing God's hand and His presence in all things in your life? Are you able to find joy in the trials and in the difficulties because of what God has done for you in His grace each day? If so, let it lead you to thankfulness and worship. If not, it's time to cry out for that, Lord, give me fresh grace for today. And so as we come to a close this morning, we're going to end a little bit different. I want you to have some time to pray and reflect on those questions. Are you experiencing seeing the glory of God? Are you experiencing His grace upon grace? Are you experiencing the blessings of being a child of God? I want you to have a few minutes to think about those questions. The instrumentalists are going to come and begin playing for us. And just where you're sitting before we sing, I want you to have time to pray and talk to the Lord about those things. Now, while you do that, there's going to be a little bit of movement up here as well, because one of our church members, Carmen, has received some medical reports this week that are discouraging. And so he's asked that the elders lay hands on him and pray over him. And this is a very biblical practice. If you're not familiar with that, in the book of James, it says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So just a minute, we're going to ask Carmen to come forward, and we're going to have some of the elders join me up here. And we're going to lay hands on Carmen and pray over Carmen today. And while we're doing that, and the instrumentalists play, you know, I want to ask you to talk to the Lord for a few minutes. Are you in awe of God's glory? If so... Worship him and thank him. If not, ask him, Lord, show me what stands in the way. Are you experiencing the fullness of being a child of God? If so, thank him for that. Because it's not of you, it's all of him. But if not, ask him, God, show me what stands in the way. I want to experience you. And are you experiencing daily grace upon grace? If so, thank him for that. And ask him for more because you'll need more tomorrow, just like we all will. If you're not, again, ask him, Lord, what stands in the way? Let this be my church and cry out for more of that. Friends, Christ came, he's called us to believe in him, but he came to make us children of God, to show us God's glory, to give us grace upon grace. And I pray that's your experience. And so would you talk to the Lord for just a few minutes as Carmen comes, as the elders, if you'll come join me up here, we pray for him. Would you talk to the Lord about those things for just a moment?